Okay, I've got sad news for you guys. Y'all want, y'all want the good news or the bad news? Okay. I really don't have any good news, but I do have bad news. This is the last message on Amos. But I have good news. Actually, I do have good news. Next week will be Hosea. All right? So that's your good news. So now we're, we've, we've covered of our minor prophets. We've covered Joel. Now we'll, we've covered Amos, Jonah, Obadiah. I think that's right. Yes, in my head. So we'll cover Hosea next. I love Hosea. It's a scandalous book. <laughs> it is scandalous. Um, it'll be a good one. So we're going to finish off Amos chapter day, and you've come on a really great day because basically the whole thrust of this message is there is no escape from judgment. How do you like that? I'm so glad that you got that extra hour of sleep last night. Do y'all feel it right now, that extra hour of sleep? You feel energized like, man, I just, now let's, let's take a, a poll of the audience for many of you in here. Did knowing that, that you had that extra hour of sleep, did you still go to bed at the same time anyways? Raise of hands. Still went to bed at the same time. Okay. So was there anybody that said, you know what? I've got an extra hour, so I'm just going to kind of, I'm just going to kind of calculate that. And I'm going to go to bed an hour later than usual. Anybody did that? We got a couple. Okay. You watch the game. This is right. I did not get to watch the Memphis game last night. Um, but I heard that it was a good one. It was a thriller. There was, uh, it was a real low-scoring game, like 50 to 40-something. Real low-scoring. Defensive did awesome, from what I can understand. Okay, so we're going to talk today about there's basically no escape. When God has decided to judge, there is no escape. And here's a great correlation. When it comes to the end of this life, because life will end at some point, that there is no escape. I mean, like, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, friend, there is no escape. You don't get to bargain. You don't, there's no purgatory. There's no second chance. I mean, like, there is no escape from the judging hand of God. This is why I tell people, the thing that Satan would love to tell us is not to, to not become a follower of Jesus. What Satan would want to tell us is to wait, to put this off, to just, for a more convenient season. There is no escape. There is no escape. Apart from Jesus Christ, the only way you'll escape, any of us will escape condemnation, is only through Jesus. Now, as we come to Amos chapter 9, verse 1 through 15, he's ending off the book and he's basically saying there's no escape. He'd already told them in chapter 7, basically, the plumb line has been like, you're, you're, not, you're not plumb. Like, judgment's coming. In chapter 8, the nearness of the judgment is there. Chapter 9 is basically letting everybody know, if you think you're exempt from this judgment, you're not. Okay, Israel, you're not. You're not exempt from this. There's, there's nothing. So what, what people tend to th- think in Israel was, well, because we're God's covenant people, because he made a covenant with Abraham that in, in the northern kingdom of Israel, they thought they were safe. Or the southern kingdom of Judah, they thought they were safe. The context of Amos is to the northern kingdom. They thought they were safe. But the truth is, God says, no one's safe. No one gets to escape God's holy and righteous judgment. God is not impartial in that way, but they thought they were. So Amos comes in and says, just in case you're wondering, there is no escape. Just in case you thought you were like God would treat you differently than everybody else. There is no escape. But here's what's funny. At the very end of it, he says, but there is grace. But there is grace. 
But before we get there, we just got to talk about all the bad stuff, right? So it's going to kind of be bad news first, good news later, okay? Don't, don't you like, isn't that how you like it when people say, do you want the good news or bad news? Don't you always say, give me the bad news first and the good news later? If you say it otherwise, you're probably a weirdo anyways. All right. So we're, let's do this. Let's stand our feet. We're going to read Amos. We're going to be in Amos chapter 9. Let's read the text. Amos chapter 9. Remember, he's now ending off the book. No one escapes. It's a vision. He sees the Lord standing beside the altar. This is, the, this is a pagan altar, more than likely in Bethel. So he says this, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, a pagan altar in Bethel, more than likely. And he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. Shatter them on the heads of all the people. You see no escape. And there are those and those who are left of them. I will kill the sword. No escape. Not one of them will flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven from there, I will bring them down. See, no, no escape. Do y'all see this? If they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. No escape. And if they hide from the sight at the bottom of the sea, I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity from their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. It's a no-escape situation, my friends. The Lord God of hosts. You know something serious when the Lord uses three of his names all in one phrase. Lord God of hosts. He who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the mighty Nile of Egypt. Who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? No escape. No escape for them. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Ker? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdoms. I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. No escape. That's basically what you get. There is no escape. You can't escape the omnipresence of the Lord, the omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of God. You cannot escape the omniscience, the all-knowingness of God. You cannot escape from his judgment. But there is grace. This is what he says in verse 8. Except that I will utterly destroy the house. uh, Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. There's some grace. We'll talk about that. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with the sieve. But no pebble shall fall to the earth. There's a little more grace. We'll talk about that. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake us. Look at this grace, verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes shall uh, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow from it. 
I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. More grace, and we'll unpack that. Will you once again go with me? As we finish this book, let us do it. It's intended justice. Let us capture what the original writer was saying to the original recipients. And let us make that jump of application to us thousands of years later. We'll trust you and God's people said. So here's what we see in this text. And by the way, I don't know if they sometimes are at the end of the rows. If you didn't get a, an outline or a, a announcement sheet, you kind of have just the title of this message. There's not really, uh, I didn't provide the outline for you. But here's the thing. We see in chapter 9, there is no escape. First, if you look in chapter 9, verse 1, there is no escape from God's judgment for their idolatrous worship location. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, he said. Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. The capitals are the upper part. This Basically, this temple obviously had pillars. Pillars was basically kind of a way they built, kind of like you look at the front of our of our church those are pillars out there not really sure if those are holding up anything be honest with you or if it's just for decorations don't have any idea but that would kind of be a that's a pillar and in this temple the pillars of it were what were holding it at the top of the pillar there's something called a capital and if you broke that pillar away from that capital it, it's means of support everything would come crumbling in so basically what's happening is god's judgment is coming on this idolatrous Worship location, strike the capitals. This would destroy, that would separate the pillar from the building. And then it would start to cave in until the thresholds shake. That's actually your entrances into it. So basically he's saying, I want this temple, these temples, whether this is in Bethel or all the other ones they built, these idolatrous locations are going to be destroyed. They will not escape God's hand of judgment. The do- until the doorway entrances are shaking to the point that you probably couldn't get out of them like an earthquake. But God's judgment is coming on this temple. Now, this may seem like nothing to us because we don't really value buildings. But you've got to understand for them, a building was directly tied to their worship. Okay, And so this was huge for them. That will not escape God's judgment. The pagan, idolatrous temples that they built. And in their mind, they built these temples thinking that they modeled somewhat the temple in Jerusalem. But pagan things happened there. They were worshiping golden calves in this temple. So it wasn't the right thing. So that's not going to escape God's judgment. Next, keep keep looking. And it says, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. So not only is there no escape from God's judgment for their idolatrous worship locations, but there is no escape from God's judgment for worshiping idolatrously. And shattered them on the heads of all the people. Doesn't that sound extreme? People who were in this temple as it gets destroyed by the hand of God, they don't escape. They die. That's basically what it says right here. And shatters them on the heads of all the people. No one escapes. And keep looking. And those who are left of them. Okay, so... Maybe someone gets out. Maybe someone wasn't there. Someone who worshipped these idolatrous images that they established in northern Israel. Maybe someone wasn't there that day, and so they're not a part of that. Look what it says in the next part of the text. And those who are left of them, what does he say? I will what? I will kill with the sword. No one gets to escape. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. 
Now, apparently, this temple destruction did kill many, but wow, there's those who weren't there, and they have no way of escape. Just a side thought to my mind, this reminds me of kind of how the message of God works. All will come before the judgment seat of God. All will answer, and only those who sought their escape in Jesus, instead of seeking their escape in false religion, only those that seek escape in Jesus will be able to be saved. So if a person says, well, I'm a good person, well, there's no amount of goodness that will actually save you. Or I've, I've given a lot of money, I've gone to church a lot, I've done a lot of religious things. None of that will actually save you. You will actually end up the same way these people. These people were giving money, they were coming and worshiping, they were attending their worship celebrations, but they were doing it in a pagan way. They weren't worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. They were worshiping a God that fit into their kind of idea. And by the way, that still happens today. Recently this week, someone had said, we were talking about that, that Kanye West has become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. If, if you don't know who Kanye West is, then it doesn't matter anyways, okay? But he's, he's become a follower of Jesus from what we know. Now, I, I think the, the Bible really would, would, would want you to give people the benefit of the doubt when that happens. So I'm willing to say benefit of the doubt. But I do know this, Hollywood loves Jesus, just so you know. Hollywood loves Jesus. They do love Jesus. Now, but the problem is, it's not the Jesus of the scriptures. It's the Jesus that is kind of the, like the kindly old grandfather that just kind of winks at mischievousness and lets his grandkids do whatever they want. So just so you understand, there's a lot of church going on in Hollywood. There's a lot of Jesus that goes on. But it's usually like, this is my Jesus. This is the Jesus of my own making. That's what the northern Israel was doing. They thought they were worshiping Yahweh, but it was a Yahweh that they had kind of made in their own image so much so that they were like worshiping these golden calves that Jeroboam, the first king, had set up. And God says, you're not going to escape my judgment. It's not going to happen. For the idolatrous worship location, for them worshiping idolatrously. And, and some people at this point will go, man, that is not fair. Why did God, like, that just is not fair. Well, then when people think that, they're thinking too much of themselves. Like, everything God does is fair. Like, they deserved exactly what God, what, what, what God was bringing to them. It's not like they were doing this innocently. They were in stiff-necked rebellion. It wasn't like they didn't have the law of Moses. They knew. And in fact, how bad were they? They were so bad that you recall back when you read earlier in the book of Amos, they committed social injustices against the poor people in their country and did things to basically pervert justice, pay off judges, take bribes so they could take land and take resources from poor people. This is what happens when you worship a Jesus of your own making and not the one true God. You start maneuvering things in life and calling it okay. So... Here's what happens. That's what they're doing. They deserve everything that they're getting. And God says, there is no escape. And not only this, but keep looking at verse 2. There is no, so there's no escape for, for their worship, idolatrous location, not, nor for them for their idolatrous worship itself, nor is there no escape from God's judgment geographically. Now, when we get into verse 2, they're using something called hyperbole. Hyperbole is kind of like, it's, a, it's an exaggeration. It's it, to, to, to display a truth, but a little bit of an exaggeration. So you look in verse 2, he says, if they dig, he's basically saying there's no, no place geographically that you can escape God's judgment. Now, just so you do understand, in their day and age, especially among pagan thought, the thought was there were all these little mini-gods, and these mini-gods um, had certain jurisdiction over certain areas. So this might be the God of the ocean. This might be the God of this region. This might be the God of weather. This might be the God of this and that. So there wasn't just this one God that overrules the whole entire thing. So it's very 
important that Amos says, just in case you think that this God Yahweh only rules over this little section when it comes to Israel, that you could leave Israel and scatter somewhere else or go to the highest depths or the the lowest valleys or anywhere you want to go and think you can escape Yahweh. You're not going to escape Yahweh. You're not going to be able to do that. That's not how this God works. So he uses a little bit of hyperbole, but just to emphasize to them that geographically there's no place to escape. Aren't you glad you came today? No place to escape God's judgment. That's where they're at. Verse 2, if they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. Uh, I debate on how much time to spend on this, but when you see that word Sheol in the Old Testament, depending on the context, sometimes it's just talking about the grave. Sometimes, in the con- depending on the context, it would be in a reference to hell. I think here, because of the context, I think it's actually in reference to hell, Sheol, He basically says, if you dig into hell, which you can't dig into hell. That's not going to happen like that. Now, you could be on your way to hell, on the road to hell, by rejecting Jesus. But, um, but, but actually, I would say this, not before rejecting Jesus. You just already are on that road already. And Jesus is what snatches you and you escape from that road. But it says, if they dig into Sheol, they basically dig into hell from there, my hand will take them. He's just saying, You could try to go as far as you want. You're not going to escape me. By the way, here's just a side note. Great. This is great table discussion, you know, when you go to Freddy's afterwards, right? Or wherever, you know, I'm sorry. Most people probably go to Mexican food restaurant. Or great discussion when you pull up to Chick-fil-A and discover they're not open on a Sunday, okay? Um, I've heard people, and man, this is like part of my kind of like Baptist upbringing and stuff that... It was always said the worst part of hell is that God is not there. The worst part of hell is that God's not there. Be truthful with you, he is there. He actually is. Like, even, even though they're using hyperbole, if they dig into Sheol from there, my hand will take them. No, actually, God is omnipresent, meaning his presence is everywhere. There is nowhere where his hand is not. So what I tell people is, in the scriptures, actually, like if you were to look at Revelation 14.10, it says, And he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured forth strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's Revelation 14.10. Now at this point, some people say, well, what about 2 Thessalonians 1.9 where it says that they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. What I tell people is this. God is omnipresent. There is nowhere where he doesn't exist. But what we have is this. God in in hell, is Jesus' presence there? Yes, the scriptures bear that out. But here's what I tell people. His presence to bless is not there. His presence to condemn and judge is there. His presence in heaven is not a presence of judgment. His His presence in heaven is to bless. So is Jesus still there? Yes, But is his presence there to comfort? No. In fact, just to tell you, the Bible is clear that that you will get a resurrected body, that that resurrected body with that soul will join together and be fashioned either for glory or for eternal destruction and damnation. We see in the scripture that there is a burning heat. We see in the scriptures that there is outer darkness. So there is physical torture. There is physical punishment That's a part of hell. You cannot, I know everybody's trying to kind of strip that out and say like that isn't there, but I see too much evidence that that's there and I don't, I can't take that away as some symbolism. But let me just be clear. 
the scariest part of hell is not the heat. The scariest part of hell is not the outer darkness. The scariest part of hell is the wrath of God. What hell is, it's the wrath of God. That's the scariest part of hell. That's why I tell people when Jesus was on the cross in three hours, he in three hours, he suffered more than any sinner ever would in hell because he took the wrath of God for mankind's sin. So here's what we find. If I dig, if they dig into Sheol from there, my hand will take them. He's just saying like, no, like you can't escape me. If they climb up to heaven, which can't really happen, but hypothetically, hyperbole, if they climb up to heaven from there, I will bring them down. It just says you can go as low as you want. You can go as high as you want. You are not going to escape, which, by the way, they tried to build something up to heaven in Genesis. It didn't that didn't work out for them too well. Verse three, if they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, a high mountaintop in Israel. From there, I will search them and take them out. No escape. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, which just, by the way, you know, the advantages of us, if someone were to say that, like, I'm going to hide from God's judgment, you know, Jacques Cousteau, right? Maybe he could get, you know, his floating vessel and get some oxygen and sit on the bottom of the sea for a little bit. And we would go, oh, I can see that. But you remember, they didn't have oxygen masks in that day, right? So this is kind of an hyperbole kind of situation. Like, it, you'd be dead if you hit it to the bottom of the sea. But they're just saying, even if you could hide on the bottom of the sea, there's no place to escape him. Where I will command this, and even if you did... There I will command the serpent, and he shall bite them. Which, by the way, those of you that go to the ocean, isn't the most frightening thing about going to the ocean just wondering, like, what is beneath your tippy toes, right? Anybody get like that? Like, you just, like, you want to, you love the ocean, but then you're a little bit afraid of it when you get out in it, right? You're just wondering, well, listen, God's the one that commands the serpent, so if you get bit, that's just God's sovereignty, right? So just launch out, right? I mean, you know, the lions didn't touch Daniel. The lions didn't because it was God's sovereign will. No shark's going to eat you. Go back down to the ocean. You're going to be all right. If they had, that's just believing in good sovereignty. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, can't do it. I will command the serpent and he shall bite them. Which, by the way, if you were to look at the book of Jonah, you can see that God does obviously command even the creatures of the sea, which we're talking about God's omnipresence, but you can even see God's omnipotent power. There's some people that think that God basically, like if he's commanding the serpents of the sea, that shows you that he actually is still in control. Although I know we're dealing with hyperbole, but we're still dealing with a principle. Like I had someone one time say that they believed in what's called deism, which is basically God created it all and then spun it around and everything just kind of travels as it wants to. God has no control over what happens in life. I would say that's not what the scriptures say. Please don't buy into that. If that was true, I would be so afraid of what Satan could do to me today. But I see in the scripture that there's nothing Satan can do to me that God hadn't already authorized him to do. Because Satan's not some bishop that can float around the board like he wants to. He's a pawn in God's plan in our life. He says in verse 4, if they go into captivity from their enemies. So like the thought is, okay, what if they were captured by somebody? Maybe that, that being captured by a more powerful nation will, will keep them from my judgment, right? He says, no. There I will command the sword, and I shall kill them. I have fixed my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Does everybody see? I mean, like, there is, there is no escape. Even when you're looking at the, kind of the um, hyperbole of the moment, there is no escape geographically. So we see this. There's no escape from, from God's judgment for their idolatrous worship location. 
There's no escape from God's judgment for their worship, for them worshiping idolatrously. There's no escape from God's judgment geographically, even though this is very hyperbolic language. Look in verse 5. There is no escape from God's judgment because of his power. Verse 5. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts. Yikes. Okay? Touches it and it melts. A God that has this much kind of power. You think you can escape a God that has this much power? I had one time a friend that I had said, hey, what, what is, you know, what, why are you, what, what, why do you reject the gospel? And, and the person said, like, when that day comes, I'm going to be strong enough to fight off the Lord. I'm like, man, there's no way you can do that kind of thing. He touches the earth and it melts. All who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises like the Nile in verse 5. And sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. I can't wait someday that I get to do. One of my goals is just to get to do like a, a Middle Eastern tour. Like go to Israel, spend a month there. Go down to Egypt, spend some time. And just kind of tour this kind of ancient time. To kind of connect up Bible locations and topography in my mind. But I'm told the Nile River is, is very powerful. And it, when it rises and floods. And if it overflows where it's supposed to usually be, it is a completely destructive force. It is powerful. And he's comparing the mighty Nile of Egypt to the power of God. Verse 6. Verse 6, he says, He who, um, who builds his chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The one who's controlling, controlling the rain, the Lord is his name. So he's just saying like the... The power of the Lord, he is in control. He can touch the earth and it melts. He controls the mighty Nile. He sets his own, his own throne above the heavens. He founds his vault upon the earth. He's overseeing the earth. He's the one that controls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the earth. Just If you've never been to the ocean and left the land, uh, do that sometime. Like go deep sea fishing or, I mean, just sometimes get in a boat and get on the ocean and get where you can't see land anymore. And it is a humbling thought. You ever been there before, right? Where you just, I remember my first time deep sea fishing and we left land and it was just water for all my eyes could see. And I knew enough geographically to know there's just a lot more of that out there and how powerful and how uncontrollable it can be. And this compares nothing with the power of an omnipotent God. He's telling them you can't escape from him because of his power. Not only that, you can't escape from him because he's not impartial. He's not impartial. Look in verse 7. No escape. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? So here's the deal. They thought, since they were God's covenant people, ethnically, and that God had given the commandments to them, that they could kind of do anything they wanted to do, and that meant that, 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 that God was going to just, like, forgive them, and it would be okay. It's kind of like what happens now when people come to Jesus, and then they th- their thought is, well, now that my sins are forgiven, I can live like hell and do anything I want to do, because... My sins are already forgiven. I would say, friends, if that's the thought that you're having, I I would please beg you to go back and revisit your salvation because when you are actually a follower of Jesus, you still do sin, but sin never tastes the same. It never satisfies. It always brings conviction. It never does. It never has the payoff that it once used to have. So he's telling them they have this thought that, well, since we're God's people, like God loves us more than he loves everybody else. And it is true. God loves Israel. And he still loves them today. 
But he loves them not because of how great they are. He loves them because of his own faithfulness. He loves them because he would bring the Messiah through them. He loves them because he had, he, he had promises that he would fulfill from that piece of land in Israel that point to his faithfulness. So he loves them not because of how great they are, but because of how great he is. He's faithful to them not because of their faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness. That's what you even see in the, in, in the, the covenant of Abraham. You see that that basically God makes the covenant promises, not Israel, because Israel can never keep it. You see, when the Mosaic covenant comes in, where God says, I'll bless you if you'll do this, and I'll curse you if you do this, and it seems like they never could actually get a hold of it. They just end up getting the curses of God. But ultimately, God doesn't wipe them off because there was this Abrahamic covenant that God had made, not based off their faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. But they had thought that because of that, No judgment would ever come for them. That they could escape it. They thought that God was impartial to them. They presumed on his grace. So he says in verse 7, Are you not like the Cushites to me? The Cushites are the Ethiopians, okay? Which in their day and age um, were thought as an outer people who lived south of Egypt. God probably didn't love them because, you know, who wants to live south of Egypt, okay? Like these people were just obviously out. God was out on these people. That was their thought. So he's using that. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? They think the Cushites have have no grace from God. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor, which a lot of people think it was the it was an it was the, an island to the west of Israel, Crete, or the Syrians from Kerr? Basically, what the Lord is saying is, you think that you're better than the Ethiopians, the Cushites. Because of the covenants that I have with you. You think that I won't judge you. You think that nothing can ever happen to you. You think you're immune. You, you think you can presume on my grace. And just because I brought you from Egypt. You think you're something better about you. But don't you know that I brought the Philistines from somewhere else. And I brought the Syrians from somewhere else. And just in case you think this. In case you think that I'm impartial in my judgment. That I don't judge sin appropriately. That you're The promise of Abraham makes you in some special dispensation where I won't deal with your sin. He says, you got another thing coming. Look in verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. So he says, it doesn't matter. I will deal with wickedness. Even this, like people think sometimes, like, can America ever fall? Yes. Yes. We are so fragile. I mean... The next time you go to the grocery store, realize this, that it would just take a couple of big events and to stop the transportation hub, and there would be not a drop of food on that shelf. And I don't know about you, but I don't know many people that have gardens in their backyard, right? And those of us that do, it was just a really neat thought we had one day. We bought some seeds, and they're probably not even growing that well. And, you know, in your three tomatoes that still survived, right, that's not going to take you very far. So God says, like, no, there's no escape. There's no escape. Great message, huh? (laughs) There's no escape from God's judgment. An application. No one in this room, no one in this room will escape God's judgment. God's judgment to condemn and judge by his wrath our sin. No one will escape that except through the son Jesus. Except and only through the son Jesus. People say, What makes Christianity different from lots of other religions? You know, lots of other religions still believe there's many ultimate ways to God. I mean, even recently, um, just getting to know another religion in our area, 
Like they believe there's many ways to God, but Christianity is one that's like it's exclusive. Like there's only one way to the Father, that's through the Son. There's only one way God's wrath has been satisfied, that's through the Son satisfying God's wrath on the cross. There's only one way, and that's the way through Jesus. That's the only way to escape the, the judgment, condemnation, and wrath of God. Now, which by the way, uh, as a side note, I don't have time for it. All of us will stand before the judgment seat of God, and we still will answer, but there's not going to be condemnation if you're in Christ. But that's another topic where we're going to talk. It'll, we'll, that's about rewards and not receiving rewards. I don't have time for that. But here's what I do have time for. I got time to talk about grace a little bit. Because even though, and, and once again, we see um, we see. The message of the gospel in this, again, this idea of the good news of grace. Here's where it is. Look in verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. So basically, remember, he's told Israel, that's it. I mean, through this book, you're destroyed. That's it. You've done enough. You presumed on my grace. You perverted, you perverted everything. That's it. <laughs> and isn't it just like God to talk out the other side of his mouth? Except that I will not... Utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Jacob is the father of the nation of Israel. That's where the 12 tribes come from. And so isn't this interesting that he's saying like, hey, I will ultimately not destroy Israel. I will, although no one's going to escape. No one's going to escape. No one's going to escape. But what do we see, church? Grace. We see grace here. He says, I will not utterly. So even in God's talk of judgment. He never was speaking of an ultimate annihilation of the people of Israel. That he was going to keep them around. He was going to keep them perpetuating. Although they would go into Assyrian captivity, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom would someday go into Babylonian captivity. And Jews would be persecuted and spread out all over the earth. Here's what's so interesting. The Jewish people as an ethnicity... They've been separated from their land for thousands of years, but still remained an ethnicity unto themselves. And, and until 1948, they didn't even have a, a homeland anymore for like 2,000 years. Who do you know that lives on this planet that intermingles with other cultures that still remains an ethnicity unto themselves? I mean, there's no telling what's all mixed up in a lot of us. Probably a lot of redneck, okay, and uh, a lot of other things. But like for them... I mean, like, there's still a Hebrew blood still going on. Isn't that amazing? That's God's grace. That they, even through two exiles, that there could still be a Jewish people. That's God's grace. God's, and here's the thing about grace. Grace is getting better than what you deserve. And so did Israel deserve any of this? Absolutely not. They, that's, so some people say, think that grace is this thing where God owes it to you. If God ever owes you something, it's not grace. That's why, like, even in my mind, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm not caught up on election. I used to. In my earlier days, I got, like, really upset with this idea of, like, I thought God was just walking around going duck, duck, damned. You know, like, you're in, you're in, you're out. And then what, when I, the, what I was viewing life, what I was viewing grace in that day was everybody deserves this. But when I really started to understand the depth and depravity of my sin, I started to realize, wait a minute, actually, we're all on the road to hell. We're all actually, we all want our elbow room from God. None of one of us deserve to even get a yes. No, one of us even deserves to be snatched from the fires of hell. And in grace, God is snatching some. Now, don't ask me for, for why all that happens and, and like, why is that 
why does he decide who's going to get snatched in the end? In the end, I can always tell you this. It's for his glory to conform you to his image. I know the scriptures say that. I can't answer all the particulars, but I do know this. There is nothing in me that can accuse God of being unfair. Because if he was fair, he let all of us go to hell. That would be fair. That's absolutely fair. So I don't get caught up on this anymore. For me to get caught up on it is because in the back of my soul, I want to presume on God's grace. I think God owes me his grace. God does not owe grace. That's what's so beautiful about this passage. He said, no escape, no escape, no escape. You don't get it. That's it. You're gone. Then he says, ah, but I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Y'all see that? Do y'all see that? What? Grace, unmerited. These people did not deserve it. They were horrible people. Verse 9. For behold, I will command and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes a sieve. And no pebble. If you have an NASB, it would probably say grain or kernel shall fall to the earth. So get this. Even in this, he basically says a sieve is like what you like. Um, like you're trying to get like um, like the chaff from the wheat or like the pure flour. You're you're spreading it out. Right. So he basically says, like, I'm going to spread through all these cap- these these captivities, Assyria, Babylon, like I'm going to be scattering all the chaff of, of Israel, those that. Uh, who, who aren't going to come to the Lord God, I'm going to be scattering them out, but I'm going to keep a remnant. I'm going to keep a kernel. I'm going to keep a seed in this sieve that, that I'm spreading out the Jews all over the place, but there's going to be a remnant. God's going to keep a remnant for himself, but no pebble shall fall to the ground, which once again, no one deserved this. But God says, I'm going to keep a remnant. What is that? That's once again, grace. Remember, and you would say, no, God owes it to them. No, God owes nothing to anybody. But you can even see in the midst of God's judgment, there's grace. That's why people say, that's why, by the way, that's why we can talk about God's judgment, because there is grace in the midst of his judgment, not to excuse sin, but to let us know that there actually is a way out from sin. There's a way out of this. Look in verse 10. And all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, Disaster shall not overtake us. So even look in verse 10. Do you see how the people, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake us? Do you see that? Or meet us? What he was saying is this. There were those who were presuming on my grace and they're going to be sifted. And there were those who were not presuming on my grace and my grace and, they, and disaster will not overtake them. Like God would give himself a remnant. There would, there would be those who would one day form the nation again. There would be those who would still be around and who would follow the Lord. And I would bring my Messiah from the Jewish people. There would be those God's grace would step in. Is everybody with me? Do you see that? Like God's grace would still be there. There would still be a, a remnant. Even though during Jesus' day, the nation of Israel was not restored to its former glory, living in any way that it did in, like it did in the Davidic past, we still see that there's a Jewish people and that God did bring some of them back from exile and they still did actually develop as a people. And they, they were such enough of a people that they could bring about the Messiah that would happen. Although Rome may have been controlling them at the time, there was still a people. And what do we see once again? That is just grace. Grace is not getting getting better than what you deserve. Now, as we finish off this text, verse 11 through 15, I have to tell you, very confusing portion of text. And I need about three hours to talk about this. Cowboys don't play tomorrow night, so I think I'm okay. But I don't know if I, I, don't know if I get it from you. 
This is a very difficult portion of Scripture, depending on even your theological view of end-time events. So some in our church would have a very strong, what we call premillennial view. They would believe that God has promises, uh, land allotment promises that he's made to the Jewish people that will be fulfilled through something called the millennial kingdom after the Lord returns. For a thousand years, God will rule and reign in righteousness from Jerusalem and the earth will experience kind of a peace on earth before the final new heaven and new earth come down. Valid view. There's some that would say, I just think that's more talking symbolically and that there's no... A specific land allotment, but that the Lord comes back and there's a new heaven, new earth, and where it talks about the millennium, that's just pointing to like heaven on earth. I mean, whatever your view is, I'm going to kind of go with more of the millennial view as I, as I kind of finish off this section, but what I will say is this. So, destruction's coming. Assyria is going to take northern Israel. Babylon's going to take the southern kingdom of Judah. They're going to just be gone. In the midst of this, more grace is offered. He even says there's going to be a restoration. Look at verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. Okay, so the Davidic kingdom fell. It split. After Solomon, it split into two. What we've been talking about. Then he says, I will repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old. So Amos sees this idea, this day when the kingdom, the kingdom will be restored through, through David. This Davidic kingdom would come someday. Now, those of you in the strong millennial camp, you would recognize and see that, that basically God started this process when he sent about Jesus, who was, the, who was born from the family line of David. And that when Jesus comes back, he will be the David reigning on the throne from Jerusalem, keeping this promise. So there is this kingdom that, that Jesus already started to initialize spiritually and already started to bring about as we bring the gospel to people. We're bringing the kingdom of God to people, that, but we'll receive its ultimate fulfillment someday when actually the kingdom comes down physically, starting with the millennium and leading into the new heaven, new earth. So he says... In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. I will repair its breaches, raise its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old. If you're a strong premillennialist, you'll recognize that this not only has prophecy towards Jesus, but prophecy towards that millennial kingdom. But look in verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Okay, man. I need more time for this. mm, I'm thinking in my mind, guys, so just give me a second. I'm trying to figure out what part to let hit on the cutting room floor here. Mm, Okay, do this. That clock is my enemy. I want to judge it. No escape. Hold your place in Amos 9. Just quickly go to Acts chapter 15. I want you to see that James in Acts 15 quotes verse 12 and 13. We can. We can do Amos next week. But I already told you I'm not. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just messing up. We may have to, but we'll, we'll, we won't. If, you, if, if what I tell you really gets in your mind and you want to talk more about this, there's a lot of nerdy stuff, Okay. Here's what I want you to do. Go to Acts 15. Go to verse 16 and 17. And hold your place there. I want you to flip between two. Okay? All right? Now, look in Amos 9. Look in verse 12. Actually, by the way, 
Verse 11, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Everybody see that? Chapter 9, verse 11. Everybody see that? You got your eyes on it? Okay, hold your place there. Then look over at Acts chapter 15, verse 16. Now, the context for this is, this is the Jerusalem council, Paul, um, um, Peter, uh, Paul and Barnabas are there with James and the other elders of, of, of the Jerusalem church. And they're kind of like, the basic deal is this. Paul and Barnabas are like, hey, wait a minute. Gentiles are getting saved, guys. This isn't just a Jewish thing. This gospel's for everybody. The Jewish people in Jerusalem are like, uh-uh. If they're going to be a part of us, circumcise them. And they got to keep the law of Moses. And then Paul and Barnabas are like, no, no, man. Like, they don't have to become Jewish to be Christian. As Gentiles, they can just become Christians. Like, the gospel's for everybody. You don't have to change your ethnicity. Like, you don't have to change your people. Like, this is for everybody. It's a broad thing. So he now quotes Amos 9, verse 16. As he's trying to convince them, James stands up and says this. After this, he quotes Amos 9. He quotes verse 11 from Amos 9. After this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. So basically he says, hey guys, these Gentiles don't have to become Jews. They get to come into the kingdom because the Davidic, remember the Davidic promise to a future kingdom? Well, that future kingdom has already kind of started now. That was Jesus. He was the start of this Davidic kingdom. Spiritually, he, he brought it about. It's here already. Not finished yet, but it's here. Okay, y'all tracking with me? So the same scripture. Now do this. Look in Amos 9 verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. And that all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Now, when Amos writes this, Edom is the descendants of Esau, the enemies of Israel, used even in the scriptures as the enemies of God. So that's what he does. Look at verse 12. Now, watch how he quotes verse 12 in Acts 15. Quoting, he's using something called the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. But wait, when you look over at Amos 9.12, that they may possess the remnants of Edom. Looks really different, doesn't it? Okay. Now you look at the next part. He says, and all the nations who are called by my name. And he says, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. That word nations and Gentiles, those are interchangeable things that happen, right? Then he says, says the Lord who makes these things, declares the Lord who does this. Now. Here's the deal. Why does he say, why does James, quoting from Amos 9, quoting from the Septuagint? Well, it's because when the Septuagint translators wrote this, uh, when they translated from the Hebrew, that's what they said, that the remnant, the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. The interesting thing is this. It seems that even the translators of the Septuagint, and even in the common vernacular, even talking to these Jewish people, Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. They understood that Edom was not only an ethnic people, but Edom was descriptive of all those who would be in rebellion against God. And what James is coming in is basically saying, like, listen, God's grace is so big and so good that not only is he he's he's bringing about like salvation to the Jews, because that was the context of Acts 15. He says, He's even doing this to the remnant of mankind. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. 
the mankind there was substituted for the word Edom, which just so you know, in the translation, Edom has a, a close resemblance to Adam. So some believe the Septuagint translators actually took Edom to kind of point to mankind, since Adam is a representative of mankind. But what what James comes in and basically says is the Septuagint kind of points to us and says this gospel is actually not just for Jewish people. It's for the Gentiles as well. Now, why am I telling you all this? Basically, here's the gist of what Amos is saying. The remnant that they may possess the remnant of Edom, that actually is pointing towards the gospel, making it to the nations. In verse 12, that all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord. So even get this. In the midst of God's judgment on Israel... He says, one day I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring the son of David through you. I'm going to bring a millennial kingdom. But not only that, I'm going to use you to bring about the nations. I'm going to bring the Gentiles through you. What is that once again? That's grace. The very Gentiles that persecute you. The Edomites. The very Gentiles that will come and take you. Assyria and Babylon. These very people. I'm going to save. I'm going to use you. I'm going to bring the Messiah through you. In fact, remember, the early church was all mostly Jews. Look what the God's going to do. And not only that, verse 13 through 15, the kingdom's going to come, the millennial kingdom. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes. Um, Basically, the treader, I'm sorry, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. So basically, in the millennial kingdom, the crops are going to be so plenteous that like, there's not going to be enough time for the person to even reap the harvest. There's just, he's going to be way behind because it's going to be so plentiful. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. If you're a Baptist, that probably didn't have alcohol. And all the hills shall flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord. So we not only see, we see God's grace that God says, I'm going to restore those those land development promises. I'm going to rule and reign from Jerusalem, not only from the son of David, Jesus, in his first coming, but the son of David, Jesus, in his second coming, like grace, 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 grace. There's no escape from God's judgment, but there is grace. I can't think of any better reason for us to take communion today than just to celebrate this idea that we deserve his judgment. We deserve no escape. But through the work of the cross, we have grace. Would you do this? Would you stand to your feet? We got a great song that we want to sing to prepare our hearts to take communion. It's a song of grace. Grace is you get better than what you deserve. Not that we are to presume on God's grace. God's grace actually makes us thankful for it. It leads to nothing more but worship and obedience to him. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you bless the singing of this song as we contemplate grace, as we afterwards come together and take of the Lord's Supper, looking back towards the grace that you've extended towards us. As we take the body and the blood of Jesus, remembering the work of the cross. Bless this time of singing to you. This isn't a passive time. Let our souls be linked up with the work of the cross at this moment. Let us be overwhelmed with grace. Let grace lead us to repentance. Let grace lead us to you. Let us see in the midst of grace what we truly are and what you truly want to be to us. 
Amen.